J. Vernon McGee famously was invited to chapel, to come back to chapel at Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't know what year. It's a legend. But um, he went and, and they sang a lot and um, they had all these other things. And so they told him right before he got up on the, uh, on the, in the pulpit, they said, um, so uh, Dr. McGee, you only have 20 minutes. We have 20 minutes. And so the students need to get on to lunch or whatever it was. And so... Um, so he got in and said, okay, I understand, thank you. So he got up with his Bible and put it on the pulpit and he said, men, it was back then, men, let's bow in prayer. They've told me there's only 20 minutes for, for chapel this morning and since you can't accomplish anything in 20 minutes, we'll just close in prayer. <laughs> I feel the same way, but we've given ourselves 40 minutes. So let's... Uh, Let's work through our notes on what I'm saying here about the, the priesthood of the believer. That's a horrible way to introduce something. All right, so the, the, the doctrine of the church age priesthood, the spiritual priesthood of all believers, was a major thing, a major theme of Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation. It was a reaction, the way Luther taught it, it was a reaction to what? The Catholic priesthood, the Roman Catholic priesthood. And here's what he was upset about. Here's the issue that just by way of introducing the history. The idea that people had, where they got this, it was over time. And there's, I could go back to when these first thoughts started to kind of congeal with some early people like uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, and some others. But the idea early was that the Roman bishop is usually right in the councils. When there's a heresy problem of doctrine, the Roman bishop usually is right. And eventually, there got to be this almost apocryphal history that Peter had established a caliph, like, a, like a, a church caliphate or a, a, a throne for the Holy See of the entire church of Jesus Christ in Rome. And, and there, there's not a historical basis for saying that. There's a legendary basis for saying that. Now, um, here's, the, here's the doctrine, though, that the people were coming to, to church in the Middle Ages, and it's still happening today in some circles and hopefully not in your hearts. But the idea was that these people, these citizens of their local, locality, Saxony, wherever, they were coming to the church to go receive the grace of God from the church. That the church was the clergy. Because there was an effort, again, through some misreadings of Scripture, there was an effort to take what God had said for Israel and to reestablish it in the church. So we have, we have a sacrifice, and they go to, you've got to go to the priest, the Levitical priest, to bring your sacrifice to God, to receive forgiveness and enjoy fellowship with God, God's design for Israel. They were doing this, trying to recapitulate this with the sacrifice of Christ. And you could only offer a sacrifice through a priest in God's system for Israel. So when you, when you when, well, we need to come bring our sacrifice and have a, a worship and, and make Leviticus walk on all fours in our experience so there was this effort to say there's not really been a change except that the sacrifice is christ and we have to re-sacrifice christ whenever we have mass and that's what mass is it's a it's a it's a ritual sacrifice of jesus wherever the mass is being held and that that was some of the theology that luther was reading his bible and saying what 
Where? Why, do we, why would we conclude this? And a lot of theology gets built on a little bit of Scripture. And then we have this whole doctrine that uh, may reflect a misreading of that initial Scripture. So that's, that's kind of what he was opposing when he went after this doctrine of the universal priesthood of the believer. And I've always believed in it. I've always been taught this doctrine. And I thought, you know, this would be a really helpful thing in our discussion of church age spirituality, the Christian spiritual life unique to this age, new for us based on many things. But John 7, really, John 7 and the Upper Room Discourse really solidify this. There was no giving of the Spirit to all until Jesus was glorified. That's what the day of Pentecost is. And now today, we believers, all of us have the Holy Spirit, where in the Old Testament, in God's earlier administration, only a few. It was a very small percentage, like less than 1% of the people actually had any ministry of the Holy Spirit in them. And you can um, check out, we've done a lot of study on that doctrine of endowment, the Old Testament work of the Spirit in the believer. David has to pray as one who is specially anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me in Psalm 51. That's not a legitimate prayer for us. We're told that the Holy Spirit has come to abide in our hearts forever by the Apostle Paul. And so there's a progress of revelation. There's a thing that God has done through church history, and we have to read the Bible closely. So in church age spirituality, I thought, let's look at the priesthood. Let's look at the believer priesthood and what the Bible teaches about it. And since it's this big doctrine for, since the Reformation, um, I'll just go and find the big places in Scripture that talk about it. Well, uh, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9 and Re- Revelation 1, 6 is the entire basis for what Lewis Berry Chafer does in his theology for the believer priesthood. In other words, it's not a major revelation and scriptures, it's an analogy. It's, it's a real thing, but it's not the major thrust of the scriptures. And um, I want to look at that in the next few visits on Christian spirituality. So we'll work through the notes here. And um, <clears throat> some of the blanks will be obvious and some won't as you wanna, if you want to work through those blanks. It's a, listen, it's very hard work for me. I just want you to understand. Feel sorry for me. It is so hard. I'm about to be uh, telling you a joke. It's so hard for me to write the notes out and then cut out the, the blanks and then put the blanks in and then, and then print it. It's so much work. So please work with it. Fill in those blanks. And, um, and <laughs> if, you, if you want, yeah, please. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Um, all right. Sanctification in Israel. This is how God set Israel apart in their practical experience, a redeemed people. When God set up his way, they would come and approach him. Or the Old Testament saints' communion with God was mediated through the Levitical priesthood. It was mediated, it was brought about through the Levitical priesthood where Aaron and his sons were specially marked off, and the entire tribe of Levi was specially marked off for this ministry of the Israelites approaching God, coming to worship God, where God uh, uh, lived, God's abode at at the tabernacle and later at the temple. There was a system of sacrifices and offerings, and this is, again, for the sanctification of these people. How can a redeemed people who commit personal sin have a relationship with a righteous and holy God? How can a redeemed people who continue to commit personal sin have a relationship, have communion, fellowship with a righteous and holy God? It will be through these Levitical offerings that God established for Israel. The priests were the representatives of the people of God, enabling the people to approach their creator in worship and consecration to him. The 
uh, priests were the representatives of the people of God, enabling them to approach their creator in worship and consecration. This is how God set up the system for the Levitical priests. And that was then, and that was the arrangement then. I'm going to make sure I know where the, where the blanks are, because I don't, I don't print off the blanks. I print off the whole thing. So you, you, you and I are both a work in progress. Wow, I don't know what my pen is anymore. Okay. Yeah, thanks. It's okay. It's okay. All right, so everybody got all the blanks filled in for the first paragraph? So we're moving on, cooking with gas. Are there more out there? Oh, thank you. Fantastic. Oh, these aren't as, yeah, this isn't as good, Alan. It, the the places I had blue, they're black on the, the copies. No, I no I appreciate that's right. All right, so the offering, the sin offering is the first offering. That that when you see the offerings presented in Leviticus chapters one through seven, there are five offerings and they're presented beginning with the whole burnt offering, but that's never the one that would be brought first in the actual practice. The first one they would bring is the sin offering. That's your blank there. The sin offering would begin the person's approach. You can check that out. Um, in the first instance where this is practiced by the Levites in the consecration of Aaron and his sons in Leviticus chapter 8. The sin offering would begin the person's approach in which personal sins would be confessed and the animal would be sacrificed as though in payment or in substitution for the sins that, are being, that were committed. And it's very dramatic. They, they would put their hand on the animal that was going to be slaughtered. And there was an identification between them and the animal. And it's almost like a transmission of sin. It's a portrayal. It's not an actual physical or metaphysical transmission of sin but it's a portrayal that this animal is identified with my sin it's that's why it's a sin offering and then it would be slaughtered its throat would be cut and be drained of its blood and that transmission that substitution was an atonement an atonement for personal sin and you would do this first before the whole burnt offering so there's a confession of sin that would take place and the whole burnt offering would follow, indicating entire or whole consecration of the offerer and his house to God. And so, so the burnt offering is what we're going for. We want to commit ourselves to the Lord. But to approach a holy God, having committed personal sins, there needs to be an in-stride atonement. There needs to be an in-stride forgiveness for personal sins. And so you sin offering and then the whole burnt offering would follow, indicating whole consecration of the offerer and his house to God. An Israelite could also bring the voluntary offerings, the grain offering, the peace offering, a grain offering gratitude to God for his provision, and the fellowship offering or the peace offering portraying the enjoyment that we have with fellowship to God. And, and both parties, God would get some in the altar and, and they would partake of some as part of a meal. And so there was a portrayal of fellowship and enjoyment of fellowship. Now, sin offering, uh, there's, a there's a fifth one called the, called the, um, the um, trespass offering. It's also been called the restitution offering. And it is addressing when there has been a transgression that another person has been harmed or money is owed or something, there would be an, a, a restitution. There would be a payment back for what you had done in terms of transgression. And it would be dealing with man and with God.
And so um, that, that was not a voluntary offering. That was something that was essential if there was something owed. This Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells Israel when they're still doing their sacrifices, where they still have a temple, he's saying, don't go to your uh, offering if you have something uh, against your brother. Your brother has something against you. Stop. Leave your offering with the priest and then go and make, make restitution with your brother and then bring your offering. And so this is very much part of the world in which the Lord Jesus came and, um, and the, the system which he has fulfilled. All these sacrifices, hopefully we're done with, uh, with the third paragraph there. All these sacrifices enable the children of Israel to worship and enjoy fellowship with God. And they all required the ministry of the Levitical priests, the Levite priests. This is for fellowship with God that these redeemed people are bringing their offerings. In fact, if you weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel, if you weren't part of the covenant community, you didn't do this. This was not part of your worship. You didn't get in by bringing an offering. You were cleansed through these sacrifices. You were restored, if you will, to fellowship, to enjoy fellowship with God. But today there is a new order and we do not have a special class of believers set aside to minister fellowship with God. The word is class. There are no Levites given to the church. And that's, this was Luther's big point, is you've done a, a, a false pattern match substitution by inventing a priesthood, a super hierarchical clergy over the church that God doesn't establish. Now, we're not talking about spiritual gifts. We're not talking about offices in the church. And that's the other side people do is they go too far and say no offices, no, no authority. The Holy Spirit is the only authority in the church. And so anybody that quakes can jump up and say whatever the Spirit quakes them to say. That's not, that's not the New Testament either. But see, what we're saying is that pastors and elders and deacons and, and people in, in authority positions and people gifted with various spiritual gifts, they're not any more or less priests than anyone else with their giftedness. And so the, the common priesthood is what we're talking about in this new order. We don't have a special class of believers set aside to minister fellowship with God. We go directly to the throne of grace through our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I go looking in the New Testament for this doctrine, that's a fun thing to do, and you have to be willing to let the Scriptures take you where God wants to take you. Go look for a doctrine in the Bible. Oh, well, I know the doctrine of this. Well, I'll go find it in this passage. Well, that's backwards, right? You want to re let the Scriptures tell you what it's teaching instead of you dictate to the Scriptures. This is what I'll be taught by you. And when we go looking for the doctrine of the priesthood and the believer, I understand Luther's historical concern, but when you go looking for it in the Bible, guess what you find? Guess what, guess what the focus of priesthood in the New Testament is? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus Christ. It's, it's a priesthood that is, he's the high priest. He's the, he's the one who is the Melchizedekian, the order of Melchizedek, the king priest. He's the king priest. And so any relationship you and I have to priesthood is in him. It's about Jesus. And guess what? There is a sense in which you have a priestly responsibility. But it never is disconnected in concept from Jesus himself and from his ministrations, from what he does. The New Testament does not make a major emphasis of the believer's priesthood, but I want to trace out two key aspects of church-age doctrine regarding our priesthood today. Two key aspects. Can anybody tell me what those key things are going to be that we're going to talk about? What's that? Yeah, the high priest. And then what's the other one? Our sacrifices. Wow. 
You guys are filling in the blanks for me. Very good. <laughs> I'm, excuse me. Y- y'all are filling in the blanks for me. That's what I wanted to say. All right, our high priest. Let's talk about our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, we are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation. There is this sense that, it, that these statements from Israel are applied to the church, but we're not Israel. And so uh, we're not looking in 1 Peter 2 this week. We'll do that next time. We'll do that Wednesday night. But, tonight, but today, I want to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, tabernacle language, entering into the veil, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. See, he's the one that opened the door, the veil, for us to enter into the very presence of God in his holy temple. And we are therefore ushered in through him. So like the high priest in Israel could only go into the Holy of Holies once every year on the Day of Atonement. That veil has been rendered rendered in two, rent in two. And now we can go in through Jesus Christ. And I contend this is what you're doing when you pray. I think this is drawing near to the throne of grace as we'll see today. So the hope we have as an anchor to the soul where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that introduces in this portion of our discussion, not just for Hebrews, but in this portion of our discussion, the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it's presented. And let's summarize it. First of all, and if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to summarize Hebrews 7 through 10. Really, like six minutes or less. Hebrews 7 through 10. All gazillion verses of that. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7, you have the introduction and the summary of Melchizedek, who he is. And what you find out is that there's not very much to go digging for. He's a mysterious character in Genesis. You know why he's presented as this mysterious character? In uh, Genesis 14 to Abraham, do you know why he's this mysterious figure? Because God wants him to be a mysterious figure that we don't know much about. And how do I know that? Because Genesis 14 presents him as a mysterious figure. What else tells me he's mysterious? And where did I read that? Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, tells me that I'm supposed to see this man as this mysterious kind of uh, flat character that is important. (laughs) He's important, but he's not developed. He's not this developed person. You don't know what his... What was going on with his kids? We don't know any of these things, and we, we might like to, but the Bible doesn't present it. What, what you're not supposed to do with Genesis 14 is squint your eyes and Bible code it up and come up with uh, something the Bible doesn't say. Hebrews 11, 7, I think, reinforces uh, our interpretation of Genesis 14. He, he, we don't know anything about him. He has no lineage. The man had a lineage. We don't know it. It's not presented in Genesis. You've read it correctly. He's mysterious. Uh, but Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So Abraham gives a tithe, the tenth, of all that he gets from the five kings, all the spoils. He gives it before he denounces the rest of it. He gives it to Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem, which will later be Jerusalem. And, king, and Melchizedek, does anybody know? You know what Melchizedek? No, that's, that's Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yeah, King Melchi is, is king and, and Sedek or Sedekah or all those TSDQ words in, in Hebrew are 
righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. It's, that's what you know about him. His, his name has a meaning. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Why did I say peace? Shalom, Salem. He's the king of Salem. So the king priest has rulership and he has priestly duties. And he's also um, in ruling. He's the king of peace. And he even rules in Jerusalem. And people say the Bible has no typology. It doesn't call him a type, but it, necessarily here, but he is very much a type with Jesus being the antitype, the king who will be the priest, who will rule from Jerusalem in peace. Now, in verses 4 through 10, you have the, the presentation that, that the writer of Hebrews is making that Melchizedek is a higher uh, rank or something. He's better. Every, all in, everything in Hebrews is Jesus is better. Better than everything. Better than angels. Better than the high priest. Better than everything. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood because Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek and Melchizedek is better than Levi. Why? Because Levi will be a son of Abraham and the lesser gives the tithe to the greater. So Levi through Abraham is giving a tithe to Melchizedek. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing with Genesis 14. This is exegesis from the passage that I cannot do, but this inspired writer of scripture can do. In other words, he's teaching me something, I think, in terms of revelation that I did not otherwise know. But this is the way he argues. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And so the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. That's the argument of Hebrews 7. In verses 11 through 22, you see Jesus as this new high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood for the basis of it, for on the basis of it, people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be do, uh, designated according to the order of Aaron? Why do you need uh, another priest if, if the Levitical priest was the termination, if that was the end, if that was sufficient? Well, it wasn't. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So see, it's a whole package. Everything we read about the law in the New Testament, Jewish writers' interpretation of the law is just an entire package. You have to take it as one unit. And so when you see that there's this new order, there's got to be a new law that goes with it. And I contend we're talking about uh, the new covenant, which is uh, something which, of which we're ministers, which is a coming arrangement between God and his people, Israel. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one is officiated at the altar. You cannot be a priest from Judah, is what he's going to say. Jesus is from Judah. So this is something beyond what God established for the tribe of Levi. The Lord was from Judah in verse 14. And they don't get to do anything, uh, according to Moses, as priests. In verse 15, it's clearer still if another, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So we don't have Levitical code establishing Aaronic priesthood in Jesus. You've got the resurrection makes him the priest, an indestructible life. And this is Jesus, certainly in his humanity, as the king priest. For it is attested of him, you, in Psalm 110, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That verse is going to be referenced all through here as a promise, as a bond that God is binding himself to whoever he's speaking to in Psalm 110, the Messiah. He will be a king priest. And this is prophesied by David a thousand years before Jesus. For on the one hand, verse 18, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. 
For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, what law is he talking about? Capital law, the, the New American Standard guys are right to capitalize that word law. We're talking about the perfect, good, and holy law. We read in Romans seven fourteen. it's perfect, good, and holy, but it was not capable to save them. And that's why he says useless. It's weakness and uselessness. The law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, the reason I'm going close here is verse 19, through which we do what? We, who draws near to God? The priest. The priest is someone who comes before God and has access. And um, the story of God's workings through Moses and establishing the, the, the work and worship of Israel, very interesting. He's having conversations with God face-to-face all through construction phase. He goes and, and, and speaks with God in person. But when it's time to establish the tabernacle and to consecrate it at the end of Exodus... Moses doesn't go. It's now got the presence of Yahweh in it in a special sense. And, and now God is establishing his order where the, the, the way there will be access to me will be through the Levites. Now Moses will continue to commune with God face to face. But in that presentation at the end of Exodus, there's a sense where Moses, this is not for you. This is going to be the work of the Levites, of, of the other Levites. Moses, by the way, is from the tribe of Levi. He's, a, he's Aaron's brother. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it is not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath. They're born to be priests. But he with an oath through the one who said, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. See, Psalm 110 is the promise that God has laid down in the poetry in this poetic worship Psalm of David. God has issued a promise to David's greater son that establishes his priesthood. It's by an oath. So much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So what's the covenant issue? He's talking about old covenant, that's Moses, Mount Sinai, new covenant, that which will be promised, has been promised to Israel and Judah, the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, which he'll develop in chapter 8. So, so far, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the new high priest with a new order, and it's all about, the whole book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus Christ. The, the king priest will rule forever as the priest. He continually functions as a priest in chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. And he's perfect. He has no sins of his own in 7, 26 through 28. So he's, he's wonderfully qualified because he doesn't have to stop being a priest when he dies. He's di- he's, he already died and rose again. He has an eternal life. He has an eternal resurrection body. By the way, we're promised a resur- resurrection body like his. And Jesus Christ gets to function as the priest forever and ever and ever and ever. That's Psalm 110, 4. And it's God's promise that that's so. The resurrection shows you how he establishes that promise. And so this is the, um, the, the, the new thing, is that there's a forever perpetual priesthood, and there's a forever perpetual priest. And we don't need... Um, and we don't need uh, a sacrifice for this priest because he has no sin. He is the sacrifice. He took our sins on himself. Verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered himself. 
So the one sacrifice, see? And that's the comparison the writer of Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, is making, is that Jesus is the one sacrifice. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, Psalm 110.4, which came after the law, when David wrote it 400 years after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So that's the, that's the summary in chapter 7 of Hebrew. And it's a great thing. Read it. Read it. We didn't just read it. We just summarized it. Some of you are like, that was too detailed of a summary for me to follow. And I apologize for that. But you've gotten a good start on reading it. And that's your homework, phase one. Phase two. All right. I actually have three points I want to say. In Psalm 110.4, Jesus Christ is the king priest that, that David is talking about. Secondly, his priesthood is indeed superseded by, uh, has indeed superseded the Levitical priesthood. The whole point is that Jesus' priesthood is new and it's better than what God did through the Levites, which was a, a, a ritual, it was a portrayal, it was a perpetual thing that they had to keep doing. Jesus has done the one sacrifice, there is no more sacrifice. And so, so that's the, the, there is a supersession. Now, supersession is a bad word. Does anybody know what it means in theological circles? Supersessionism? I'll say it in more vernacular terms, replacement theology. Oh, I know what replacement theology is. It is that the promises God made to national believing Israel have been replaced as spiritual believing church international. That God has replaced Israel, his eternal people, with the church, his eternal people. And that there's been this replacement. And people that believe this don't like that language. Like, no, 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 no. It's not replacement. We are Israel. And, you, well, uh, well, uh, and, and they'll say, see, Galatians 6, even the Israel of God. And you say, no, it says, and the Israel of God. We can argue about that all day. But see, there's this replacement that people have done. Uh, and it's been a problem since Augustine. It's been a problem since early, early in church history that we haven't read the scriptures closely and looked at the details. Here's what, you, here's what I'm saying. You cannot take the provisions of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and spiritualize them to mean the kingdom in our hearts or something like that because of the land. This is why the land is such a contentious, contentious thing. I think the Lord allows it to continue to be in our face that the land is, a, is it an issue. Can't have one Israeli state among all these declared dogmatically Muslim countries surrounding it. You can't have one state that you actually get the land that God said that they could have. Can't have that. We've got we to gotta call them an apartheid state. All that wickedness is going on in the world today. And it's anti-Semitism. And while I'm here, to say I'm anti-Israel, the state, but I'm not anti-Semitic, that is just idiotic. People are anti-Israel because they're anti-Semitic. That's the whole thing. That is it. And if they're not, they're, if they don't believe that, they're self-deceived. And that's true of our Congress people that claim that, that they're, well, Ilhan Omar is on the news. She says, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Israel. Now, that's, that's called anti-Semitism. I looked it up, anti-Israel in the dictionary. It says anti-Semitism, there's a little picture of Ilhan Omar. Anyway, um, <laughs> you cannot spiritualize the land promise because God continually says, uh, you know, the one between the rivers. There's a river on this boundary and there's a river on this boundary. Oh, the rivers mean the Holy Spirit. No! No, that's, that's a mismanagement of Scripture, and Origen taught the church to do that, and that's why we don't like the Alexandrians. But Arius came from, uh, from Antioch of Syria, and we don't like the Syrians that, for that reason, the, the Antiochians with their Arianism. 
So you can't really believe in anybody but Jesus when it comes to church history. We, we wear a, a jersey and it's got Jesus on it. We don't have any other teams. I'm from the Antioch school of Theodore Mopsuestia. We believe in literal interpretation of prophecy until Arius comes along. Well, no, not so much. We don't like Arius. See, and, and so you, you really have to go back to the Bible. And if you don't know your church history, that's okay. It's a fun thing to study. I would start, if I were you, with the Airman's Handbook on the history of the church. It's a great study. It's a great little one-stop shop. It used to be on every, every evangelical Christian's bookshelf. Now you can get them for 50 cents on Amazon for used because all the evangelicals threw them out and got all the replacement stuff. But uh, the early church had a problem with this replacement thing, and I'm not saying that, and, and the writer of Hebrews isn't saying that. He's saying there's been a supersession, there's been a replacement, but it's of a priesthood. We're not, you, you Hebrew Christians that he's writing to, you're not to go find a Levitical church priest. You're in a new priesthood with Jesus having replaced that ministry of the Levites. In uh, 8, we're going to chapter 8, you go from the heavenly temple to the earthly temple, the concept of heavenly versus earthly. And, and he goes through the, the, the contents of the earthly tabernacle. But in going through the earthly tabernacle, he says in verse 5, these priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. This is my theory. I think there's a real throne room of heaven, you know, like all the passages that talk about the throne room of heaven. I think that the tabernacle is a model. It's a diorama of the earthly or the heavenly temple. Why are there cherubim on all the curtains in the holy place between the outer court and the, between the, the, outer court and the most holy place? Why are there all these angels embroidered on the, the, the place between? Like, that's what the Bible seems to indicate. There's three heavens. The third is the abode of God, and, and there is his presence, his throne of grace. But they, they serve a copy of the sh- and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, and he said, See, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. See, this is very helpful when you read through Exodus and God's instructions. He says, this is how many porpoise skins and badger hides and all the things, and I need you to dye this red and put this thing this long, and these are big, the, how big the curtains are, and then you're going to have wood walls that are going to be hung by these poles, and as you read through it, you say, somebody draw me a picture. Well, right there, Moses did get a picture. God gave him a little vision. He said, this is what you saw. And, and I think... Um, that's the pattern that we're referring to. Verse 6 through, uh, yeah, 6. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is a mediator of a better covenant, a better contract, a better arrangement, which has been enacted on better promises. And now it's the new covenant. He's going to introduce the concept of the new covenant. And he goes where? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which says, I will break, will cut a covenant between myself and the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Now, here's the crazy thing that I think based on what Jeremiah wrote and what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I think he's actually talking about a covenant between his people, Judah and Israel. I think that is a real thing. And that's not hard for me to sort out. All Israel will be saved at the end of Romans 11. When Jesus comes back to rule his people from Zion, he comes back to a believing remnant and enacts the new covenant with them. That is our destiny to minister, to watch as we, the church, serve with our Savior in our coming rule. 
So we have the discussion of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 are quoted in uh, uh, 7 through 12. And in verse 13, the therefore. When he had said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now this makes it sound like there's still a temple when the writer of Hebrews writes. They're still going to the temple, but there's pretty soon there won't be one, one stone of the temple stacked on another when Titus comes through in 70 AD. So then that takes us to chapter 9. Look how good we're doing. We're almost through. The earthly tabernacle, the Levitical system of sacrifices, the eternal sacrifice, the blood of the old covenant versus the blood of the new covenant, and then Jesus Christ is our sacrifice in chapter 9. When you get to chapter 10, we see that the offerings that God gave Moses for the Levites are not sufficient, but Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. And then we have the completion of the work of Christ, that it is finished. And then on that basis, you have instruction. That's our sacrifices in Hebrews 10, 10, I'm sorry, 10, 19 through 25. And here's what it looks like for you to be a believer priest in the order of Melchizedek under Jesus Christ. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Again, who gets to go in the holy place by the blood of Jesus? The priest. See, that's the establishment of a priesthood. Jesus is the high priest. And you can imply, infer that in, his, in him, on his coattails, we're entering. So it's a summary description of your relationship with God. We enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have, was his flesh torn See, he was, he was broken for us. The cross is portrayed by the tearing of the temple veil. The work of Christ is the way that we have access to God. It's a figure. It's a real thing, but it's being given this metaphoric picture that he is the veil. Now, when it says the veil is his flesh, you who interpret the Bible literally know that we don't mean that his body is a curtain. But there was no way for us to get to the Father into the presence of the throne of God except through Him, and He had to bear our sins in His own body on the cross. And so when He did die on the cross, the actual temple, the the veil was torn from top to bottom. As though God is saying, do you get it? See, it's, it's 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 a picture of this provision of access. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Who gets their bodies washed with water to approach the, 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 the tabernacle? Who gets that? Read, read Leviticus 8. That's the first thing they do to the priest before the sin offering, is they wash their bodies. It's a ceremonial cleansing. But he says, there's the outside and there's the inside. Our hearts sprinkle clean, our bodies washed with pure water. Is he referring to water baptism as a ceremonial ritual that uh, inaugurates your obedience to Christ? Maybe. I'm so committed to, against baptismal regeneration that when I, when I see a passage that might talk about water baptism, I always say, wait a second, let's check that out. Because the water has never saved anyone. It didn't save Aaron, the priest, and it doesn't save us. But there is an identification that's being made when you have a ritual baptism. The identification is that I believe in Christ, that I'm, I'm dead with him and I'm alive with him. 
And I believe that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is what actually connects you to Jesus irrevocably. You've been made to drink of one spirit. This is, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John talked about. He will baptize you with spirit and with fire. This is the real baptism that really identifies you with Jesus in his past, present, future. We'll talk about that in uh, Romans next hour. But the water is the symbol. It's the picture. Where, would, where in the world would I think? How do I have the right to say that the water portrays the Spirit of God? 1 John 7. I mean, only John, John. Gospel of John, chapter 7. Streams of living water are a reference to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the waters of baptism, but I think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the real baptism. Water is the portrayal, and that's why Jesus could tell the man at the cross, you'll be with me. That's one of the great arguments against baptismal regeneration that you get saved through the water. No one was ever saved by water. And if, oh, well, you could say, well, no, Jesus made one exception for the criminal at the cross. He, was, he wasn't water baptized. Or some have said, well, no, he, he was. He, Jesus didn't lie, but we just didn't see someone walk by with some holy water and splash him um, before he died on the cross, right? I mean, no, he was saved because he was a believer. And you're, you're not saved by any work, including uh, bab- baptism. And uh, one of my favorite Baptists has wonderful writing about this. It's Charles Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that Calvinist Baptist, is very helpful on this. Well, this is a good introduction, a good start. And we're going to talk, uh, I would ask you, challenge you to read what he talks about in Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, another summary doctrinal instruction passage, where your treatment of one another, your work for the Lord Jesus, is considered a priestly sacrifice. Your spiritual life, walking by the Spirit, and going to the throne of grace in Christ is indeed a priesthood. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the advocacy of your Son, who right now is interceding for us, who is equipping us through your Holy Spirit to know you, to think your thoughts, and to reckon ourselves, as you've said, dead to sin and alive to you, Father, in Christ Jesus. Help us not neglect our so great salvation, any of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.